listening to the Atlas Investor Podcast with Portfolio Wealth Manager, International Real Estate Investor, and Global Citizen, Tiho Brakan. Join us as Tiho helps you grow your wealth, reduce your risk, and increase your freedom. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the Atlas Investor Podcast with Tiho Burkhan. Today, this is episode number 19, and it's part two of a two-part episode where Tiho is discussing where you should invest your money today or where you should be looking to invest as far as uh, which markets could generate the best returns over the long-term future. Tiho, it's it's great to have you back. It's great to be doing another podcast uh, how are you? I'm very good. And yourself, Jordan? I'm great. Uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, what you're going to discuss today. And uh, I'm sure our listeners are. So before we get into it, why don't you uh, discuss this second part of the two-part episode? Yeah, sure. So in the first part, as you know, we've looked at uh, the outperformance of United States stocks, small caps and large caps and how well they've done over the last three years, over the last five years, and over the last decade, basically, since the uh, global financial crisis. And the valuations are now quite skewed in favor of uh, an attractiveness, too, of international equities outside of the United States. Um, And what we're going to cover in this podcast is basically various countries that stand out and also cover why they stand out. In other words, there's a reason why they're attractive or cheap. And that usually means that, uh, you know, markets can remain sometimes a little bit more depressed than we think they should remain so. So from that perspective, we are looking for a catalyst and when there's going to be change in a certain country, uh, which has potential, but it's not living up to that potential. Um, And therefore, the question is, when do we become buyers? Because timing is very, very important. As my mentor used to say, timing is not everything. It's the only thing. Okay, Tiho, before we get into the specific valuations from any of these individual countries, first, I just want to ask you a question about CAPE. And the reason I want to ask you is because it seems like a lot of people in the investment world, they pan CAPE as it doesn't really mean anything. It's not useful. So I wanted to ask you, um, do you is CAPE at all useful to you? When is it useful? When is it not useful? What should the average person be looking at and uh, inferring from the CAPE data? So that's a great question, Jordan, and uh, thank you for asking that. I mean, I have seen quite a lot of articles back and forth regarding CAPE and should you use it, should you rely on it, or shouldn't you rely on it, and so forth. I think like any other indicator or any other tool that you're using, uh, it really depends on the user. So. It's, it's up to you whether it's useful for you or whether it suits your trading or investing style uh, and whether you know how to use it in the first place. Because if you don't know how to use some tool, well, clearly it's not going to be a useful tool for you. And you should probably rely on your set of signals and your kind of investment or trading style. For me, CAPE is very useful, but it's not very useful for everything. So, for example, it's not very useful for picking tops or trying to get out of overvalued markets and so forth. 
I rather use sentiment and technical indicators for that and variety of other indicators too. Um, you know, when the market is trending also and there's a strong momentum and it's already expensive, I don't need Cape to tell me it's getting more expensive. You know, you, this is what a lot of people have made a mistake with, with United States equities, even over the last three years, since the August 2015 bottom or the February 2016 bottom. When, when we bottomed out due to very, very low sentiment, uh, we started to rally upwards and, it, and we've had strong momentum all the way until January 2018. And everybody kept saying the stocks are more expensive, the stocks are more expensive. Oh, guess what? Next month, the stocks are even more expensive. Yes, we understand that. But it wasn't until we had a blow off top starting in December 2017, which is like a terminal uh, phase of the rally, which usually ends with a serious correction, and it peaked on 26th of January. It wasn't until then that we actually started to correct, the valuation started to matter. Until then, it was more momentum or technical indicators uh, than valuations. However, when using valuations to pick bottoms, I think it's very, very useful, um, in particular, Certain indicators like price to book or CAPE can range and have certain uh, standard deviation on the upside and the downside. In particular, the downside feature is very useful for me. Like emerging market data running back about two decades or more uh, clearly shows that when valuations go into single digits, like below 10, for example, you should really consider uh, buying emerging market stocks. And, and the same is true with the price to book ratio. Emerging markets uh, went below book value during the tech bust in the early 2000s, as well as Asian financial crisis and the Russian default in 1998. And they did so again in the global financial crisis in late 2008. And then finally, January, February 2016, during the commodity bust and the China slowdown story, they once again approached that, you know, below book value kind of evaluation. Um, so... Cape can be very useful, and so can other uh, indicators or valuation metrics. Uh, and I personally use them quite a lot, but it really depends on investment style that a certain trader or investor, you know, uses uh, today in their day-to-day -day activity. Jordan, I hope that answers the question, um, because everybody will hold a different opinion, of course. Yes, that was really fantastic. Thank you, Tiho, and. Uh Sticking with valuations overall from a, a bird's eye view, um, this next chart, uh, our, our listeners uh, at, at theatlasinvestor.com and followers on YouTube, they can see this chart, but uh, the listeners on iTunes who are just listening to this uh, audio and they can't see the chart, um, this is a global stock market valuation matrix. It shows the, the CAPE on one side and then the price to book ratio and there's dots showing the countries and where they are. And, and Tiho, I want to let you describe where certain countries are on this matrix and uh, just add a few other insights uh, at what you see if you can. Sure. Well, basically, uh, the majority of the world, uh, let's say, is trading around two times book value and around 20 times CAPE. That's about the median or the average, uh, you know, using the, uh, the eye test, I would say, looking at the matrix here. Uh, but I have two boxes that I've created. One is called very expensive and one is called very cheap. I think this is where opportunities lie uh, and also traps uh, lie for invest investing. So I definitely don't want to be close to uh, countries, uh, putting my capital into countries such as United States or Denmark, which are basically trading at three times book value or higher 
and they also have a cape of 30 times or higher. Having said that, somebody could very easily come to me and say, well, if you followed this kind of a rule over the last couple of years, you clearly would have been wrong and you would have missed out on great gains as the United States continue to outperform the rest of the world. And that's correct. That's why I mentioned just previously that it's important to use not just valuations, but also momentum uh, for investing. Uh, there's always a two-sided picture. And even in podcast number one on the Atlas Investor uh, iTunes, we we discussed precisely the two sides of the investing story. One is the valuations. The other is the momentum. Uh, and both work very well. But if you're a value investor, if you're looking to deploy a new capital and put it to work today, I would recommend going somewhere where, I guess, future expected returns could be higher, uh, 5, 10, or even 12 years out from now. And that's the very cheap box. So in this box, you've got Greece, you've got Russia, you've got China, you've got South Korea, you've got Singapore and Italy and Israel and Poland and Turkey and Czech Republic and Spain and Colombia. Uh, and a handful of other countries which are kind of close to that, like uh, Austria and Hong Kong, Malaysia, Portugal, Egypt, Brazil, and so on. And some of these are actually, uh, I think, attractive to personally to me. And some of them, despite the fact that they're cheap, are not attractive. And I won't be putting my money there. So, um, you know, it, it comes down to doing your own homework, your own research, and, and realizing whether there is positive change happening. Because just because something is cheap doesn't make it a good investment. It could stay cheap and it could get even cheaper. So Greece is a perfect example of that, which we'll discuss later in the podcast. But there is also other countries which might be a little bit more expensive on this matrix, but they actually, in my opinion, present a much better opportunity because they have much better fundamentals. And not all stock markets need to be extremely cheap and extremely depressed. Usually good quality assets don't get uh, very cheap. And this is this is the case with the United States. You know, one can very easily argue that while the United States is very expensive right now, especially relatively to the rest of the world, uh, United States never got very, very cheap, even in March 2009. Um, it kind of would have fallen into that blue box where we are under 17 times CAPE and under 1.5 times book value. I think maybe not. Uh, but we would have approached that blue box for those watching the YouTube and reading the blog. But United States uh, still offered a great opportunity, a generational actually opportunity to buy into the world's uh, greatest stock market full of wonderful companies. Uh, after all, Jordan, Warren Buffett did say, I'd rather buy a wonderful company at fair price than a, uh, an average company, I believe he said, at a wonderful price or a very, very cheap price. So in other words, uh, really good assets rarely become depressed uh, because they are really good. Okay, Tiho. So there's a number of countries here that we could discuss, and and some of these we we've, we've discussed uh, in past podcasts actually in great detail. But uh, here and now, we're going to try and break things down by regions, uh, and that way we can get a lot of information out and analysis out to our listeners uh, without uh, droning on and on forever. 
Uh, but with that said, Tiho, the first uh, region that I want to, or, or category that I want you to talk about uh, is the foreign developed economies. So foreign developed outside of the U.S. Uh, some countries here, we have Japan, Canada, Singapore, South Korea, Taiwan. Those are some examples. Uh, give us your uh, overview of the uh, attractiveness of these countries as far as valuations and if there's other insights you want to share with respect to these countries. Sure, well, definitely. Uh, so foreign developed economies, uh, first of all, you have the Asian tigers and the whole Asia, Asian developed story. You have uh, Singapore, South Korea, and Taiwan, and you also have Japan. Uh, one could also include Hong Kong there, but I think Hong Kong really hasn't had like a, let's say, a lost decade, and it's not really depressed. So, you know, if you're a momentum investor, sure thing. It's not extremely expensive market despite very strong gains since March 2009. Um, and, you know, at the same time, it's quite attractive from that perspective and the momentum perspective. So we could even throw in Hong Kong there. But what I like about Taiwan, uh, what I like about Japan is the fact that the markets have had two lost decades there. They've been going sideways since about late 80s. And they've only started breaking out recently, uh, making a nominal high, um, new record high above the late 1980s record. Uh, so that's that's very exciting, you know. And uh, so from that aspect, we don't really need a valuation matrix. When, when a market has done nothing for such a long period of time and there's some kind of positive change happening there, um, and obviously China is the positive change in the reason, uh, in the region, uh, these stock markets are benefiting from the Chinese economic growth over the last 10 years or so, and they continue to export large amount of volumes to China, and their economies in turn are continuing to grow. But obviously, they're so anchored towards China, whenever China has a slowdown, they're also going to have a hiccup themselves. But uh, Japan is very interesting, as I said, and so is Taiwan. Um, moving along, uh, Singapore, we discussed in depth in previous podcasts, and I highly recommend our listeners and uh, readers on YouTube to, to go and have a look at a previous podcast where we just discussed Singapore uh, really, really in depth and just covered everything. I believe that was episode number 12. Um, but Singapore is very cheap, and recently in February 2016, traded below book value, and it had a very high dividend yield, Jordan. Uh, South Korea has had a lost decade since 2007 and recently started to break out, uh, which is very, very interesting uh, as well. It's, it's another great story in Asia. So if you look at China, if you look at South Korea and Taiwan, uh, those three countries make up more than 50% of the emerging markets ETF. Uh, and even though I, did, I am counting South Korea and Taiwan as a developed economy, uh, they're still, uh, you know, part of the MACI Emerging Market Index. It really depends. But I think if you ever visit uh, Taipei or Seoul, as I've done with both, uh, and traveled to Busan as well outside of uh, the, the capital cities and had a little bit of a uh, other perspective towards Taiwan, you will clearly notice that despite the fact that two, both economies are small, they're really, really advanced and they're great export powerhouses. So in my opinion, they're definitely developed. They're a lot more developed than, let's say, Portugal, and that's counted as a developed market in, um, in the MACI uh, index. But moving along also, what uh, you know really, really stands out to me and catches my eye is Canada. Canada has also had a lost decade. It might not be the cheapest market in the world, 
Um, you know, it, it's kind of priced fairly, not too expensive, and uh, also not too cheap. Uh, like I said before, just below two times book value and around 20 times CAPE. Uh, but the interesting thing about Canada is that it's suffered mainly due to its currency falling. So when, when you price the Canadian market in US dollar terms, it's actually had a lost decade since 2007 and still going sideways. I think eventually uh, this, this market will break out. And like all markets eventually do, they, the total return uh, continues to trend upwards. Um, so from the foreign developed markets, Jordan, these are the four, five or six countries that really stand out for me. Um, and they, they should have a decent uh, future expected return over the next five to 10 to 12 years. Okay. And I'll just add just the valuation matrix chart, just again, for our listeners that can't see this right now, Singapore and South Korea are in that blue box that you designated is very cheap. And, and Tio, I, I won't ask you which, which of these five or six countries are your favorite because I know that information is, is for your clients only. Uh, so I'll let you off. I'll let you off on that for now, but let's move on and talk. <laughs> let's move on Thank and talk. You. Let's move on and talk about another region, uh, Southern Europe. Uh, we got the, the pigs countries, Italy, Spain, <laughs> Portugal, and Greece. Uh, give us your insights on these. I mean, we know that Greece is is, is basically the cheapest market. Um, you know, what any interest in buying any of these? I mean, uh, what are your thoughts here on on the potential for these countries over the next five or ten years? Well, it's a great question, by the way, and this is a perfect example of countries that are cheap, but it comes down to reform. These countries are, excuse my French, but they're lazy. Compared to the Northern Europeans, they're just lazy, and the work ethic uh, is just on a different level. Uh, and that doesn't mean that it's wrong, by the way. Uh, they have their own style, uh, uh, and they have their own mentality. They have their own view on how life should be lived, and they're not interested to be pure capitalists. You know, one great thing about United States is that a lot of people get up early in the morning and are go-getters, and they're ready to perform. They're ready to be a part of a capitalistic economy. And they participate in that. It's wonderful to see. And it's been a secret source uh, of United States uh, civilization, I guess, and why the country has risen from uh, a colony to such a great uh, powerhouse of the world and basically the empire of the world uh, with the reserve currency over the last 70, 80 years or even longer. Uh, some of the other fallen empires like Spain or Italy, for example, uh, were great once, but cannot repeat their success anymore. And they really need to change their mentality um, because they're nowhere near the way that the United States is running their own ship. Uh, they're not, not actually anywhere near the way the Northern Europeans are running theirs, which is, uh, you know, so therefore they're lagging quite a lot. These markets are very, very cheap. Uh, markets like Spain, for example, uh, out of the whole developed world, they could they actually have a uh, a really good, real expected return, in my opinion, that they should be able to do 8% on real basis, Jordan, over the, over the next 10 years, plus or minus, you know, we're just uh, approximately discussing it here. But Spain has had a lost decade, and it's been kind of trending in this big triangle, technically, and I think a breakout is coming some of these years. But, you know, you just don't know how it's going to play out. Uh, eventually, markets do make new legs up. Um, and, and this market is very, very cheap, no doubt about that. Uh, but Italy and Spain are the big ones in the pigs, and they definitely need some serious reforms. 
in particular Italy, that economy has not done anything since 2007, and, and the situation is getting going from bad to worse. Uh, and when you go to Italy there, it's not even that comforting for tourists to go there anymore. The, the, the Italian mentality towards tourists is one of just get as much money as quickly as possible and rip off people without not without even giving a proper service the way that the old Italian people used to do. Uh, when you come to Cinque Terre or Amalfi Coast or you come to Rome or uh, Venice or any other part of Italy, uh, for that matter. Not everybody's like that, but you can just notice that uh, the quality uh, and uh, the high level of service that Italy is famous for in their great sector, one of their great sectors of the economy, which is tourism, has dramatically fallen too. Um, and they're having political problems. Uh, the society cannot figure out in which direction it wants to go, whether they want to stay in the European Union, or what they're going to do with their banks, what they're going to do with their incredibly high levels of government debt. But I have to say that despite the fact that the government is incredibly indebted, Italian families are some of the richest in the world. I actually have some friends who are managing capital in Switzerland, and they tell me, uh, you know, recently when we had um, a conversation over dinner, they said to me, Tiho, who do you think out of the European region are our biggest clients and what their nationalities are? And, you know, first thing that came to my mind was Germany or actually even Switzerland, or maybe Sweden, or UK and Britain, uh, you know, uh, countries like France, these are the powerhouses of Europe. No, actually, it was Italy. Italian families have parked so much capital in Switzerland and other safe havens, and they're incredibly wealthy. And, uh, you know, it goes to show, because they haven't been paying taxes for so long. So the government is broke and bankrupt, but the rest of the society, I guess, is in, in good shape. So from that aspect, I think Italian families would weather the storm much better than, let's say, um, the Italian government. But moving along in the pig section, we got Greece, and that's just been a disaster. You know, we've discussed, I think, Greece before uh, in some ways. So you got the property market, which is down nine years in a row, and I think it's starting to recover now. And you got the stock market that's also gone down for 10 years in a row, and it's the worst performer out of all the stock markets in the world. It's down uh, something like 96% from its all-time high, but recently bottomed in January 2016, and it's attempting to make some kind of a rebound, you know, but it's not really a bull market, so to speak. This is the country where the question is whether it's doing the right reforms, and uh, I think, you know, whether it's not doing the right reforms, it's up for debate. Uh, one of the interesting things is that my brother is right now in Athens, and he was in Santorini and Corfu and all these beautiful Greek islands, and we were talking over the phone just a week ago, and he was telling me, wow, you should really have a look at Athens. The population has dramatically dropped, like since the crisis started, they lost like 25 or 30% of their population, I believe. So it's been a very, very hard impact on the society. And all the reforms that have been put in place are there just to save European banks, which the ECB doesn't want to let default. And it's same with the European Union. I mean, for Europe really to improve, and for some of these countries uh, in, in the South, which are extremely cheap, by the way, for us investors to allocate capital to them, we would really want to see the system properly cleaned out. We would want to see proper reforms take place, and these countries to move a little bit more towards the capitalism and less towards socialism to move the needle to that side where uh, it's less reliant on government dependence 
and to have more private sector reforms. I mean, you know, th th they are very cheap countries, but would I invest in Greece? Uh, I'm definitely not putting my money there. Okay, well, let's move on to a uh, different part of Europe, Eastern Europe. I know this is uh, one of your favorite areas to analyze. Um, listeners of the podcast know that you're in investing in the Czech Republic. Uh, some other countries there worth covering include uh, your home country, Croatia, Hungary, Poland, and Russia. Some, some very interesting opportunities here, potentially. Why don't you start off with uh, the Czech Republic and then... Uh, maybe discuss uh, Poland and Russia after that? Well, cent Central Europe is really Czech Republic uh, at the heart of it all. And I noticed that a lot of investors who follow emerging markets, they really don't understand what's going on in Europe, and they think the whole Europe should be one whole basket. But you've got 28 nations there. And Czech Republic has had wonderful growth over the, this uh, whole expansion, and it has had problems when the rest of the Europe went down. But what most people don't understand is that the tourism in Prague, which is predominantly the main part of Czech Republic, uh, when it comes to, I guess, the economy, it's, uh, I think, something like 60% of all the action. So the tourism is absolutely booming. And we're now up to 8 million foreign tourists visiting. And I think in about three to four years, as we discussed in previous podcasts, Jordan, uh, Prague could overtake Rome. So the tourism industry is huge. And the Chinese are coming here in flocks and flocks, and they're spending double the money of a, of a next tourist person from another region like Germany. So uh, an average Chinese spends 1,000 euros per night, while the average German spends about 400 to 450 per night. And then lower it goes down to other regions and other visitors. Um, what most people also don't know is that Czech Republic is very close to Bavaria and Munich. And Dresden, and this area of Germany is predominantly one of the wealthiest, and this is where all the great, or majority of the great companies in Germany are located. So we've had a lot of manufacturing come across the border and flood into Czech Republic, even into Slovakia and Poland. So there's a lot of work happening in Czech Republic where they're uh, doing manufacturing on behalf of not only German companies but the overall European companies because the wages are lower but the working class is very, very educated. Um, so that's very interesting too. Then the real estate sector has been doing very well over the last four or five years. Uh, and what most don't know is that Czech Krona has been doing very well against the US dollar on the relative basis and very and even better against the euro. While Mario Draghi remains in negative rates, the Czech bank has actually hiked rates four times over the last, I think, I believe 18 months. So, um, you know, the monetary system also is in a, obviously a different state. The unemployment rate here is the lowest in Europe. The economic growth in GDP is the highest in Europe. And I think apart from South Korea, Czech Republic is the only other emerging economy that's about to turn into a developed economy. Now, let's think about that for a second. You go South Korea, which has done an extremely wonderful job. No doubt about that. But they've been very fortunate geographically. They were located right next to this juggernaut called China, which has prospered over the last two decades. And almost 50% of all the South Korean exports go into China. There's a huge demand right on their border, right on their doorstep. Imagine if you take Czech Republic outside of the slow, slowing Eurozone, which has issues and demographics, and you had crisis after crisis, and you, and you put that country into Asia or into another area of the world where the economy is growing very strongly. 
I think Czech Republic would have done even better. So I'm very optimistic on Czech Republic. Uh, I also have to mention the taxes there are uh, very attractive too. They're 19% for corporations, so they're still lower than the reforms that Donald Trump did in the United States at 21%, I believe. And uh, there's a flat tax for all wages at 15%, uh, and dividends and interest tax and withholding taxes like that are 15%. And for investors who create their own funds, like the way that I do, the taxation is 5%, so it's very, very attractive. Um, so when you put it all together, really, there's a lot going on uh, for Prague and Czech Republic, and it doesn't surprise me also that it's very attractive from the investment perspective. When you average it out over the last 10 years, uh, based on uh, price-to-book ratio, uh, price-to-earnings ratio, price-to-cash flow ratio, price-to-sales ratio, Czech Republic comes as, out as the cheapest stock market in the world, uh, even more cheaper than Greece, despite the fact that Greece has some very, very low matrix. Uh, and, and very low metrics and very low readings. Uh, Czech Republic's overall is the most attractive market with the highest dividend yield in the world, I believe, out of the majors at 5.5%. Um, so that, that, that is one that I'm really, really interested in putting my money uh, now and in the, in the longer term from now. But would I invest in places like Croatia, Slovenia, Ukraine, which, is all, which are also very cheap in Eastern Europe? Definitely not. Would I consider... Russia, yes, I think the future expected returns of Russia will be wonderful over the coming decade, and I think the country will have another bull market similar to the way that it had uh, coming out of 1998 when it defaulted. Uh, Poland, I've been very optimistic on, so Poland and Czech Republic I like the most. Hungary is a so-so for me. Uh, there is interesting real estate um, in Budapest, uh, and it's priced lower than Prague, but obviously for a reason. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I'm not completely sold on Hungary, but I do like Czech Republic. I do like Poland and I do like Russia and the Eastern European bloc, Jordan. Okay. Thank you so much for that, Tiho. Now let's move on and just talk about the rest of the world and, uh, emerging markets there. I mean, some examples include, uh, Brazil, Argentina, Turkey, Egypt, Vietnam, Nigeria. I know there's a few there that you really like. We don't we don't have to cover all of these, but uh, why don't we start with Latin America and your your feelings on Brazil and Argentina right now? Well, there are interesting reforms happening in Argentina, and uh, if you look at the economy on the ground, it has been making progress. If you look at the financial markets, the sinking currency, the spiking bond yields, and so forth, then I guess the investors who are following on their Bloomberg terminal and never got out of their office to actually go to Argentina and have a proper look, they would actually tell you that the economy is doing very bad. Uh, but they've never actually been to Argentina, and they've never actually been on the ground and seen what's happening. Uh, having said that, it's not a wonderful story either. So Argentina is interesting, and, and whether the current president uh, will be able to continue with reforms and stay in power through all the pain that the society and the civilization is kind of currently taking and all the consumers are going through, uh, that's a question to be seen. Brazil, that's the country that they always say Brazil is the next greatest country in the world, but it never really gets there. Uh, you know, Brazil had a wonderful boom into 2008 to 2011 on the back of the commodities boom, but it's been a disaster since then. And uh, recently, I believe Brazil was as low as 75% uh, down from its all-time high in 2007. It's, we've had a recovery 
recently we once again had a mini crash and Brazil remains about 50% down. The volatility is enormous, but you know, having said that these emerging countries, they offer some wonderful uh, future expected returns. We're talking about Brazil, Poland, we're talking about Turkey and Russia. Uh, they really, really have uh, been beaten down and battered and uh, Turkey in particular as well. The, the Cape recently has fallen to 9.4 now. Um, so very, very interesting. And the dividend yield is above four. And it, it's all because, I guess, uh, the currency has been sinking. Uh, the political situation there is a bit dreadful, uh, to, to be quite honest. The tourism has fallen a lot, and places like Croatia are benefiting so much in tourism now because a lot of people are not going to Turkey the way they used to. Um, you know, so, so other countries benefit from, uh, from this kind of turmoil that's happening in Turkey. Um, you know, bond yields recently shot up and went through the roof. Uh, the president is kind of running the country like a dictator in some ways. Um, so obviously international investors uh, are jumping uh, over themselves and tripping over themselves to get out of Turkey. And that's creating extremely, uh, I guess, attractive and favorable valuations. When will there be a catalyst for us to invest? It's hard to say. Uh, I actually made a joke today on my Twitter because uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, CEO, not CEO, but one of the main analysts, he was on Bloomberg saying, uh, the question was, would you consider investing in Turkey right now? It's very cheap. And he said, no, thanks. Uh, the country's doing everything wrong. So I just said, that must be the bottom. Because if, <laughs> Goldman, if Goldman Sachs is saying, don't buy Turkey after it's fallen dramatically over the last, uh, let's say, nine months or so, and it, it's at one of the lowest valuations since March 2009, well, we must be close to the bottom if Goldman Sachs doesn't like it, because when they do like it, it'll be probably time to sell. Having said that, it's not as easy as that. And these countries like Turkey, Brazil, Argentina, Poland, Russia, they have extremely high vol annualized volatility readings. So at times, while you are offered a wonderful return relative to where the United States is priced today, the volatility is maybe double or even double and a half of what you expect in the S&P 500. So on your way to realizing a 15% nominal return uh, over the next 10 years, if the current valuation projections are correct, you will probably have to suffer a 30 to 35% volatility, which is maybe up to three times higher than the S&P 500. And what that means? Well, it means that before you realize your gains, you might have a, another 30% drop, then a 90% rally in a two-year period, then another, then the market could half, then the market could go up three years in a row by 25%. And it's a bit of a wild ride. Uh, and it has been like that uh, since 2007. So to have a more of a smoother ride, to, to for volatility to come down and compress, and for the gains to become a little bit more... Um, I guess the standard deviation of, of gains to move to the upside, we need an actual uptrend or a bull market. And that's only going to happen when the US dollar peaks, Jordan. So it really is, at the end of the day, a currency story. As long as the United States Federal Reserve is hiking rates and putting, putting the, uh, I guess, the longer term rates uh, as well as the shorter term rates towards higher levels, um, this is putting pressure on some of these fragile emerging markets. And on top of that, the higher yielding currencies, such as the U.S. dollar now, 
is getting a bid and a lot of the uh, investment flows are leaving these countries and moving back towards the United States. I mean, in particular, this is also happening away from emerging markets in places like Australia, where I believe another hike or two and the Federal Reserve will have higher interest rates than the Reserve Bank of Australia, which, which is something that rarely happens. Usually the Aussie dollar is known as the high yielding currency or the commodity currency because it carries the higher yield. It carries a premium. Uh, and that's why investors, like, they trade the spread between these two. They borrow, they used to borrow money in United States dollars and they used to do a carry trade over in Australia. Well, now it's completely turned around. I mean, if the United States currency yields more than your local currency, why would you hold your savings in Aussie dollars when the United States dollar uh, actually yields more and it's a reserve, a reserve currency and therefore it has a bit more safety to it. Um, so, you know, US dollar is still the main story when it comes to all of these uh, markets, Jordan. And until, that, until that trend reverses into a downtrend, uh, I, I believe some of these countries or majority of these countries, despite the fact that they're cheap, they'll probably continue to remain so. Okay, Tio, uh, that, that, that's great. Uh, that puts a, a button on this issue. But there are two countries I want to get your comments and thoughts on, uh, may, maybe just a couple sentences on each, because I think oh, these two countries, I'm talking about Vietnam, which are very familiar with, and also Nigeria. These are two countries that I think, if you look at a lot of the projections out there, that these are projected to be real growth powerhouses over the uh, coming, not just the coming years, but the coming decades, really. So maybe you could just give us a couple sentences on each. Well, I lived in one of the two, and I know it very well. I can't say I know it extremely well, but I know it very well. That's Vietnam. So I lived for two years in Saigon for that same purpose as to understand the country and where it's going. It's got wonderful demographics. And it's right on the doorstep with China, so it'll benefit from the whole ASEAN growth as well as the Chinese growth. Despite the fact that some of these countries like India and China could slow down in the near term, they have very good potential in the long term. And the, the, the global GDP uh, center point is shifting from Europe and United States towards Asia once again, like it was maybe a thousand years ago. Uh, so Vietnam, I'm very bullish on, and I have investments there anyway, which I'm holding long term. Uh, as for Nigeria, I picked that to be one of the good performers last year, uh, and it, it, it uh, had a wonderful rally in 2017 for, for the most part of it, and my clients did very, very well. Um, Nigeria had a first ever recession uh, since 1990s, I believe, early 1990s, and when the economy started to recover, I was there to scoop up some bargains. But I understand that there hasn't been any proper reforms yet and the corruption as well as the recovery in gas and oil hasn't been all that wonderful despite the fact that oil prices have gone up the the drilling sector the exploration sector hasn't really done that well nevertheless looking at the long-term horizon this is expected to be one of the top five population economies in the world so i, I believe that nigeria will eventually get above 400 million people which will be the top five in the world and it'll, I guess it's on its way to one of the mini superpowers eventually. Uh, it, it depends uh, how the country will be managed. Um, and it's always difficult with African nations. Um, they have success for some time, but then usually somebody wrong comes into power and something doesn't go the right way. The reforms stall and, you know, the investors pull out. But I think Nigeria has some potential on that continent to be uh, 
better, than, relatively speaking, than the rest of uh, the uh, countries and jurisdictions there. So I'm very bullish in the long run. Okay, Tiho, you covered so much today. That's a lot for our listeners to take in and digest and think about. Um, if possible, could you summarize what you think are some of the key ideas and the main points that you want our listeners to take away? Sure. Well, you know, we're talking about the whole world there outside of the United States. There is about a 195 countries plus. So it's not easy to cover it in uh, a few minutes, but we gave it a good shot. Uh, if you got the stomach for it, and you can close your eyes and put your investments away. I think uh, Turkey and Russia will produce some wonderful returns. And I think also the demographic story in India, despite the fact that it's expensive right now, if you got the guts to hold it over the next 20 years, not just 10, I think you'll do very well. Um, also in Eastern Europe, I believe Poland and Czech Republic are a bit of a gem. And I think Russia is so dirt cheap and there's some positive change going on there in some ways as well uh, with corporations and economic growth and so forth. And also some negative things remain too, which we don't have to discuss because they're a lot more political. Uh, and it's kind of uh, fashionable to be talking about what's wrong with Russia these days. But So I don't want to get involved. But Russia is also a very interesting investment too. Um, when it comes to Asia, I do continue to like China, Japan, South Korea. Uh, Singapore uh, and Taiwan, this area of the world seems to be breaking out on the upside. And uh, as we covered last week with emerging markets, uh, China, uh, South Korea and Taiwan make up about 50% of the index. So, you know, and Japan is not part of the index, but Japan also broke out too. So whether these four or five countries will remain above their recent uh, resistance that they broke out from and whether they got that these lines of polarity are now going to act as support is the key question that we, that we have to ask ourselves and it's the key line that we have to watch. So generally speaking, these are some of the places that I'm investing in. They're a lot more attractive than the United States, but that doesn't mean that I'm neglecting the United States in my portfolio. Having some trading skills, I understand I can stay in the momentum game and as long as it continues to go up and it wants to go up, why not be part of the bull market? Uh, seriously. Uh, even if valuations go even higher and higher and higher. But eventually the bull market will end. So just make sure you, when the trend ends, uh, to step aside and raise cash and, and get out of the market because it could really disappoint you on the downside, Jordan. So, uh, yeah, look, uh, if I had to pick one, uh, I guess I've already voted with my money and I'm definitely investing in Czech Republic right now, both physical assets and financially. Okay, Tio. Well, thank you so much for that. And I'm thinking for episode number 20, we should probably cover what's going on in the currency market since uh, the dollar is going to play a very big role uh, with respect to uh, the near term and the long term uh, as to how uh, the markets of many of these countries will perform. Uh, do you think that's a good plan? Definitely. I'm looking forward to it. So we'll get into the United States dollar, we'll get into the majors, and then we'll get into the emerging market currencies too.
Thank you for listening to the Atlas Investor Podcast. To be notified of future podcast episodes, visit theatlasinvestor.com and sign up for our free newsletter. T. Hoper Khan offers his clients a wide range of services, including portfolio construction and wealth management, one-on-one consultations, global real estate opportunities, international tax planning, citizenship and residency planning, and one-on-one mentoring. For a free consultation, visit theatlasinvestor.com and contact T. Hoper Khan.